0: The title of this evening's talk is Spiritual Urgency. What are the seeds that bring you to practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat like this particular one? Beginning this evening with a few questions. Questions that Humans have felt and asked forever, forever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of history, these murmurings of the heart, the deep questionings and yearnings that have been going on as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is death about? Who am I? Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What do I need to be truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully, peacefully with all of the challenges and all of the difficulties in this constantly changing world? with all of the challenges within me and all around me. What is it that brings me to practice? I suspect that these kinds of questions have shown up for you at various times in both subtle and maybe more overt ways. Our practice isn't about getting caught up in mulling over these questions. But rather the questions can be taken in as a motivating force, taken in as inspiration towards dropping more and more deeply into our practice. This evening's talk is about an urgency to awaken. And the Pali term for this is samvega, which is most often translated into English as spiritual urgency. But actually it's a a term that's somewhat difficult to render into English, because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, it's spoken about as one being moved or stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice by what should move one. And then the systematic effort of one so moved. the urgency to practice, the urgency to awaken. It's an energy that's not at all fraught with a tense or frantic or obsessive quality. It's a quality of mind that most often comes out of some degree of understanding the way of things understanding the natural laws of how it is, which maybe for some of you may have been sensed and first felt as the endlessness, the round and round and round in daily life. Or for others, maybe felt through some degree of perception of change, the perception of impermanence, anicca, And the attendant unsatisfactoriness of things because of this. Or some vega may be felt through feeling the enormity or maybe even the subtleties of the suffering in life in general or in the specifics of suffering in one's own life. For some, the urgency to practice, the urgency to awaken comes from what might be a long accustomed or possibly a new sight in relationship to the mental pain felt in observing or maybe directly experiencing bias or prejudice or, uh, uh, what do I want to say, bias or prejudice or uh, being dismissed in relationship to race or in relationship to gender or age or sexual preference. Each and all of these experiences and painful feelings attended by some vague or maybe not so vague sense that it doesn't really have to be this way, that there's another way, and an urge to move towards this potential other way. When samvega first stirs us it can be an emotional state that might be somewhat difficult, maybe somewhat disturbing, until it finds a clear and healthy direction to connect to. While right along with this, this stirring energy of samvega has the power in itself to move us towards a clear and healthy way, towards connecting to that clear and healthy direction. And I think it's important to note that all along the way of our practice, samvega is an essential and motivating energy of successful practice. From my own experience, I would describe Samvega as the feeling of being stirred and inspired to a sense of spiritual urgency by phenomena that goes on within my own body-mind process and by phenomena that goes on in the world around me. Happenings that I may be directly involved with in some way or other, or happenings that I'm simply an observer of. Samvega is the movement of the heart, an inner response to various occurrences that happen both within and outside of formal practice times. And for me, it's an inner response to let go deeper and deeper into my practice. It's this flavor of samvega that moves me, stirs me, again and again, towards letting go of, towards relinquishing the painful contraction, however strong or however subtle, of clinging to anything. When samvega is present, it may sometimes be experienced as an urgency or sometimes as an ardency, an inspired heart, an inspired mind, a passion, we could say, for spiritual practice. Something that I'm sure uh, some of you, if not all of you, have felt at times. And at least in part, may be uh, what's brought you here to this retreat. As a, as a Dhamma teacher, your ardency and your sincerity in and with your practice, it moves and inspires me. And I think it's probably safe to say that this is true for all of the people that I've had the honor to teach with. We're moved and inspired by your sincerity and your ardency in your practice. And this is one of the wonderful aspects for all of us here right now, right here. Meditators and teachers alike. Of living in a practice community such as this. Even if it's just for a short while. We move and we inspire each other to deeper and deeper levels of practice. So more specifically, what is it that moves and inspires us towards practicing? And what along the way of our practice keeps urging us, moving us, towards sustaining and deepening in our practice? What might move us outwardly? What might move us inwardly towards this sense of spiritual urgency? What moved you to come here to practice now, to come to this retreat? There's a beautiful account of how Prince uh, Prince Siddhartha Gautama came face to face with what are called the four heavenly messengers while being driven in his chariot through the royal city after all of his youthful years of isolation in a kind of make-believe world. This account of his seeing old age, sickness, death, and a person dedicated to understanding the truth, a person dedicated to awakening. And maybe this story is more than just symbolic or metaphor considering the possibilities that these four messengers, these four very common events of life, old age, sickness, death, and though not so common in our time and culture, the many and quite obvious truth seekers that were so much a part of the time and the culture that Siddhartha grew up in. So considering the possibility that the great and ripe mind of young Siddhartha on those morning chariot rides saw and experienced these very common aspects of life much more deeply than had ever occurred before. To such a degree that he was urgently moved to leave the riches and the ease and the comfort of his life, urgently moved to seek the truth, inspired and moved to be liberated, inspired and urgently stirred towards awakening from the ache and uh, of delusion in relationship to the complacent lull and the familiar habits of his life and the overt suffering that touched him so profoundly on those morning chariot rides. Isn't it really the same for us, the same case for us, that most of the time, with the many times that we've seen these same messengers in our own life, both outwardly and inwardly, that we've reacted reacted by ignoring them or by distracting ourselves from them in many ways or by even pretending or maybe even believing that something else is happening until somehow at least one of these messengers really touches us deeply and then we respond we respond in fact in a similar way as did Siddhartha by being moved and inspired to seek a path of truth, seek a path of wisdom. We're somehow stirred at this point to walk a different path than constantly feeling overrun with sadness or anguish or fear or attachment or maybe anger or confusion in relationship to all the various occurrences of life. Our closest surroundings are full of stirring things, stirring in the sense of some vega. If we generally don't perceive them as such, isn't it really because of our habits, our habits that in fact render our vision dull and our heart insensitive or reactive? And this can even happen in relationship to the Buddhist teachings. We, at some point along the way, have, we may have encountered times of very powerful intellectual or emotional or spiritual stimulation in relationship to the teachings and the practice. But at times, even this impetus can lose its freshness and its impelling force as maybe some of you here have experienced. The remedy is to constantly renew it by turning to the fullness of life around us and within us, which constantly illustrates the Four Noble Truths in ever-new variations illustrating the first noble truth of what suffering is, what it really is, and then showing us its cause, its origin, that being the clinging relationship to what in fact can't be clung to, which is the second noble truth. And the third noble truth, the truth that there's an end to suffering, the solution, so to say. The solution being to not cling. And the fourth truth being the way of putting the solution into effect via the path that each of all of us, each of you and many others are engaged in walking at your very own pace right here, right now in this retreat. as very likely some of you have experienced and know, there can be a moment of direct vision within our own body-mind experience of these truths. Or quite unexpectedly, some degree of understanding of one of these truths can show up. For instance, what might be A fresh seeing of our habitual reactions of fear, anger, grief, yearning, or clinging. Or insight, wisdom, might arise unexpectedly in relationship to a long accustomed sight of some manifestation of poverty in the world. Or maybe a weeping child. Or the distress of someone that you regularly have some degree of contact with. Or maybe in relationship to the unaccustomed connection with the physical or mental illness of a loved one. Or one's own illness. Or one's own bodily discomfort. Or myriad other flavors of experience. Each one of them. Having the power to startle us, so to say, to promote a reflective response, and to stir a sense of urgency in our resolve to practice this path that leads to the cessation of suffering. through seeing our own experiences of body and mind very directly, clearly, and more and more subtly, we might be stirred and moved by seeing and knowing the changing, impermanent, ephemeral, selfless, and impersonal nature of things. Something that, of course, is very available to each of us. For instance, a moment of knowing the impermanent nature of things, a moment of knowing that all is impersonal, all is anatta. Phenomena just naturally arising and passing according to conditions. And with these moments of seeing and knowing we're often urgently stirred, inspired to go deeper in our already chosen path, to go deeper towards the end of suffering. Samvega asks us, we could say, to step out of our everyday, ordinary, conditioned habits, to step out of our conditioned inertia, Each of us have many, many stories, many experiences that come out of our pursuit of a spiritual life and within our life as a whole. Of course, we have many stories, stories that exhibit this knowing and the manifestation of some vega. It's actually often part of what's heard in talking with you during interviews. There are a number of wonderful stories and dialogues in the suttas uh, telling us uh, of the Buddha's disciples being stirred up towards practicing with a more vital spiritual urgency. This stirring being done by the Buddha himself or the stirring being done by one of the arahants, one of the enlightened disciples or sometimes by one of the practicing devas devas being uh, those beings whose practice has brought them to be dwelling for sometimes very long periods of time in beautiful states, but who aren't yet awake, aren't yet enlightened, aren't yet completely free of suffering. There's a section of short suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, in the wo- called the Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various woodland-dwelling devas approach uh, a certain bhikkhus, certain monks who are practicing in those wooden thickets. And so, I'd like to share a few of these uh, encounters. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling among the kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. And on this particular occasion, the bhikkhu had gone to his spot in the forest for his day of practice. But all the while, kept thinking thoughts of strong desire connected with the household life. And then the deva that inhabited uh, that particular woodland thicket having compassion for that bhikkhu and desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the bhikkhu speaking, I mean the deva speaking. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove, man, the desire for people. Then you'll be happy, devoid of lust. And lust, not necessarily meaning just sexual lust, but lust for food, for things, for various experiences, for various objects. And the deva goes on, speaking to the bhikkhu. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let us remind you of the way of the good. Hard to cross, indeed, is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down just as a bird littered with soil, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. So a bhikkhu, or a yogi, a meditator, strenuous and mindful, with a shake, flicks off the sticky dust. Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next dialogue takes place uh, shortly after the Buddha's Parinibbana, after his death. His closest attendant and cousin, Anatta, had been strongly encouraged uh, uh, to attain arhantship before the first Buddhist council convened, which was scheduled to begin uh, during the next rains retreat. So Ananda had gone to the Kosula country and entered the forest, a forest abode to meditate. But when the people in that area found out that he was there, they continually came to him lamenting over the death of the Buddha. And so Ananda felt that he had to constantly instruct them in the law of impermanence. The forest dwelling who lived in that same area was aware that the upcoming Buddhist council could succeed only if Ananda attended as an arhat, So he went to Ananda and to provoke him uh, and inspire him to resume his meditation practice. And this is the Sutta. On one occasion, the Venerable Ananda was dwelling among the Kosalans in a certain woodland thicket. Now on that occasion the Venerable Ananda was excessively involved in instructing lay people. Then the deva that inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for Venerable Ananda, desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And this is the deva speaking. Having entered the thicket at the foot of a tree, having placed nibbana, In your heart. Meditate, Gotama. Now, just an explanation because Ananda was the Buddha's cousin, he had the same family name of Gotama. So that's why the uh, Deva called him Gotama. Meditate, Gotama, and don't be negligent. What will this hullabaloo do for you? Then the venerable Ananda, stirred up by that Deva, acquired a sense of urgency. And I picked this particular dialogue because uh, though we're not in the same position as Ananda was, uh, we're certainly often, quite often, uh, caught up, uh, seduced by the seeming necessity for us to engage in the hullabaloo, the hullabaloo of various circumstances, both external circumstances and internal circumstances and neglect or maybe at times even lose our practice and instead go for these things this hullabaloo to me this little verse really beautifully and clearly points out the importance of keeping our priorities straight and clear not of course to neglect what needs to be attended to but to know when we're seduced unnecessarily or maybe even inappropriately into the hullabaloo. So, another verse. On one occasion, a certain bhikkhu was dwelling in Vesali in a certain woodland thicket. Now, on that occasion, an all-night party was being held in Vesali. Vesali. Then that bhikkhu, lamenting as he heard the clamor of instruments, gongs, and music coming from Vasali, recited this verse. We dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods. On such a splendid night as this, who is worse off than us? Then the deva that that, inhabited that woodland thicket, having compassion for the bhikkhu, and desiring his good, desiring to stir up a sense of urgency in him, approached him and addressed him in verse. And he said this, As you dwell in the forest all alone, like a log rejected in the woods, many are those who yearn for your state, a forest dweller subsisting on alms food, with few wishes, content. Many are those who envy you, Many are those who wish they were there, as hell beings envy those in heaven realms. Then the bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The next verse is regarding a bhikkhu who continued thinking thoughts of ill will and harming as well as thoughts of sensuality while he was practicing in the woods one day and the deva who inhabited this same woodland area out of compassion and wishing to stir up some vega in him spoke to him in verse and said this because of attending carelessly you sir are eaten by your thoughts having relinquished the careless way and in this case careless way means uh, attending to things as permanent as self and as desirable because they're pleasurable having relinquished the careless way you should reflect carefully and meaning carefully meaning attending to the true characteristics of phenomena as impermanent, as non-self, and thus unsatisfactory in nature. You should reflect carefully, the deva said to the bhikkhu, and goes on to say, by basing your thoughts on the teacher, in this case the Buddha, on the Dhamma, and on the Sangha, and on your own virtues, you will surely attain to gladness, and rapture, and happiness as well, and then when you are suffused with gladness you'll make an end to suffering." Then that bhikkhu stirred up by that deva acquired a sense of urgency. The last verse that I'd like to share with you is about a bhikkhu who after returning from his alms round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day he would go down uh, to a nearby pond and sniff a red lotus. (laughs) So when the deva who uh, lived in that same thicket uh, saw this, she thought this. These are her thoughts. Having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. And so out of compassion, and wishing to stir up some vega, the deva addressed the bhikkhu as follows and this is the davis speaking when you sniff this lotus flower an item that has not been given this is one factor of theft you dear sir are a thief of scent <laughs> and the biko responded i do not take i do not damage i sniff the lotus from afar so for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent?" And the, uh, the bhikkhu goes on, one who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the devra says, when a person of, is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him, but it is to you I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu says, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed and the deva responds with what I call a surprise ending. The deva says, we don't live with your support nor are are we your hired servant. You bhikkhu should know for yourself the way to a good destination. (laughs) (laughs) Then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. So it seems among uh, those of us then and now, those over uh, 2,500 years ago who were devoted to the teachings and the practices of the Buddha, and those of us right here and right now, it seems that, in fact, things haven't changed very much. Our human predicament crosses time and cultures. The teachings are really timeless. The solution that the Buddha offers to our, what I sometimes call our karmic predicament, is as relevant today as it was in India when these verses were spoken. When Samvega is kept alive or renewed in various ways, and to varying degrees, we experience a release of energy and courage, both of which help the development and the blossoming of faith, sada in Pali, and confidence, pasada in, in Pali. Each of these qualities, energy, courage, faith, and confidence, are essential in helping us to break through what for some of you might be some degree of a sense of timidity or maybe hesitation or maybe some fear or maybe doubt or maybe some complacency in your practice. The Buddha countless times and in countless ways exhorted his followers to Arouse some vega. In speaking to a group of disciples, in one sutta he says, Rouse yourselves. Sit up. What good is there in sleeping? And in this case, sleeping meaning the sleep of ignorance, the sleep of delusion. What good is there in sleeping? For those afflicted by disease, meaning the dis-ease of suffering, the dis-ease of constant dissatisfaction, For those afflicted by disease, struck by the arrow of craving. What sleep is there? Rouse yourselves, sit up, resolutely train yourselves to attain peace." And the Buddha goes on. Go beyond this clinging to the pleasures of the six sense doors to which humans and most devas are attached and which they seek. Do not waste your opportunity. When the opportunity has passed, they sorrow when consigned to the realms of suffering, the realms of confusion and anger. Negligence is a taint, said the Buddha, and so is the greater negligence growing from it. By earnestness and understanding, withdraw the arrow. The traditional metaphor for practice is that it crosses over the stream to the further shore. The Buddhist attitude towards life is about keeping one foot, so to say, out of the mainstream and on the ground, the ground of a sense of spiritual urgency the ground of samvega. The Buddha was so confident in the solution that he found to the predicament of the unsatisfactory round, the cycle of birth, aging, and death, which is actually occurring moment to moment to moment in our life, breath by breath, that not only does he ask us not to close our eyes to this reality, but to also engage in a moment-to-moment observation of the cycle and to be completely honest with ourselves in the process. The Buddha's confidence was so clear and so strong that he called the reality of suffering the first noble truth, which from this perspective we could say is a gift that confirms our most sensitive and our most direct experiences of things. And then from the gift of this first truth, this first noble truth, the Buddha asks us to become even more sensitive, even more sensitive to the point where we see, where we know that the true cause of suffering is not somewhere out there, not coming from some outside thing or some outside being, but that it's coming from in here in here in the craving and the clinging and the fear that's present in our own mind and then the buddha in his great confidence coming directly from his own experience and often using himself as an example confirms that there's an end to the suffering there's a there's a very available release from the cycle And he offers us a way to that release by the development of particular noble qualities of mind, noble qualities of heart, moral or ethical responsibility, sila in Pali, mindfulness, clear comprehension, energy, joy, happiness, Tranquility, concentration, equanimity, loving kindness, compassion, faith, and confidence. All of these qualities and these capacities, sometimes I think of them actually as capacities, really sprouting out of the original energy of. Spiritual urgency, some vega, that at one point led us to look for a solution to our predicament. So our predicament has a very practical solution, a solution that's actually within the powers of every human being, a solution that as we practice we begin to have a growing faith in and maybe possibly as we read and study the many stories, the many teachings within the enormous breadth of the Buddha's discourses. But really, most importantly, the faith that we come upon, that we come to know out of our own direct experience, through our own practice. So the Buddhist attitude towards life both cultivates samvega and is the solution or the path that develops out of a sense of spiritual urgency, that develops out of samvega. As our faith in the solution to our predicament grows, as it develops and as it deepens, it in a sense is what gives us the energy to live. The last story I'd like to share with you this evening is maybe a, a somewhat unlikely one from uh, the contemporary writer Annie Dillard, a story that um, I found to be very inspiring and that invoked a, a strong spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it many years ago. And that continues, actually, to move me every time I read it. So these are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week, I, was, I startled a weasel, who startled me, and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thin as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruit wood, soft-furred, alert. His face was fierce, small and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes. I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous shaggy wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else, a clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain, or a sudden beating of brains, with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs. It filled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled, into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. This was only last week and already I don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing and the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind full of data and my spirit with pleadings. But he didn't return. I tell you I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds and he was in mine. Brains are private places muttering through unique and secret tapes, but the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet and shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or to remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular. But I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity and dying at last ignobly in its talents. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness as a prolonged and giddy fast where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly, like blood pulsed into my gut through through a jugular. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, chastity and obedience, even of silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as he's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you. Then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even. Till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds. And let your very bones unhinge and scatter, loosened over fields, over fields and woods. Lightly, thoughtless, from any height at all. From as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should. And I suspect that for me, the way is like the weasel's open to time and death painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. In the light of Samvega, it feels appropriate to share some of the Buddha's last words before his death, words offered to his monastic and his lay disciples to instill a sense of urgency in them, to exhort them to keep going along the path. And this particular quote is from a somewhat expanded version of these words that comes from a Tibetan translation of the Parinibbana Sutta that I, when I read it, found it to be quite inspiring. O bhikkhus, do not grieve. Even if I were to live in the world for as long as a kalpa, our coming together would have to end. You should know that all things in the world are impermanent, are of a nature to decay. Coming together inevitably means parting. Do not be troubled, for this is the nature of life. Diligently practicing right effort, you must seek liberation immediately. Within the light of wisdom, destroy the darkness of of ignorance. Nothing is secure. Everything in this life is precarious. Always wholeheartedly seek the way of liberation. All things in the world, whether moving or non-moving, are characterized by disappearance and instability. Stop now. Do not speak. Time is passing. I am about to cross over. This is my final teaching. And in closing this uh, evening's talk, we come back around to the opening questions. As one of my favorite poets, Mary Oliver, in her very own way poses in, in this poem called A Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan? and the black bear. Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper I mean. The one who has flung herself out of the grass. The one who is eating sugar out of my hand. Who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down. Who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention. How to fall down in the grass. How to kneel down in the grass. How to be idle and blessed. How to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do? with your one wild and precious life. And let's just sit quietly for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org